Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the show. It is hot as a motherfucker here. Not just in the studio. Studio's cooling down a tad, but in New York. I uh, I saw last night, it's going to be 84 degrees today. That in New York in May is um, pretty much unheard of. So, <clears throat> I don't know how I feel about that. I'm a big fan of the 65 degree weather type days. So 83 is uh, obnoxious as fuck. Uh, Well, the good news is there is a jam-packed show. Joe Biden launched his rally, uh, launched his rally, launched his campaign officially at a rally. Uh, We'll talk about that. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that he's running for president, and he's already tried to out-Trump Trump Trump and failed miserably. Um, Bernie releases a badass education plan that I can't wait to talk about. And, um, later on, we got war criminals galore. Wait until you hear the story of a Navy SEAL who is basically, uh, Nazi-esque. <laughs> and that's not, like, I always hesitate to make Nazi comparisons, but this is one of those instances where I think it's unavoidable. Because the stuff that he was doing is mind-boggling, and it's savage, and it's brutal, and of course it's illegal, it's criminal. So, um, I hope you don't have anything planned for the next two and a half hours or so, because we're going deep, dog. We also have um, some televangelists here in the show today, Rick Wiles, as well as um, the idiots at Jim Baker's show. Wait until you hear the grist that they're in on. And I had to do the golf story. There's a golf story about uh, President Trump that you are just going to laugh nonstop at. I was howling when I read this story. And that'll be, unfortunately, that's later in the show. you got to wait for that. But anyway, 
without further ado, let's get started, and um, we'll jump in with Hansy Uncle Joseph. I do have a little clip for you here from his rally, so let's uh, cue that up, and then we'll be off. So Joe Biden officially launched his campaign at a rally. Um, this is going to give you an idea of what his strategy will be moving forward. So let's take a look and then we'll come back and I'll break it down. the main theme of his rally, and he kept coming back to this, and he kept hammering away on it, is unity. He wants to put that front and center. He wants unity to be his main thing. And it, it's apparent that he means unity in the sense of Democrats and Republicans working together, and also unity in the sense that he's against Donald Trump's bigotry and xenophobia, so you know we should all come together our white brothers and sisters, our black brothers and sisters, um, Asian, Muslim, 
Jewish, whatever, all different groups can come together, and it's all about unity. And, you know, I can't help but come to the same conclusion that I've come to with other candidates who we've looked into on the Democratic side, uh, and that conclusion is he's really stuck in a previous generation. And you can tell the old-school candidates, because the old-school candidates have themes like this, themes of togetherness, let's hold hands and sing kumbaya and unify, and, and the new-school candidates, the ones who are actually going to be um, – you know, I think some of the last ones standing are the ones who are framing this race and framing the problem in the country as the have and the have-nots, the elite versus the average Joes and Janes. That's a much more potent and poignant political message that lands, because the only time you can really get away with using a, you know, a unity uh, argument is when the country is actually doing pretty well. If everybody's doing well, then yeah, you're much less likely to actually even see manifestations of you know, bigotry and, and, and things of that nature. When economically people are well off, you have a natural decrease in all these uh, social and societal ills. But the thing that uh, Joe Biden doesn't know is that things are not hunky-dory in this country. People are really, really, really struggling. And you wouldn't know that from his speech, now would you? So he talks about unity, and he argues pretty clearly and in a straightforward fashion, I will be the continuation of President Obama's legacy. I was in the White House with Obama. Now I want to be president. And if you like what happened in those years, vote for me. That is massively, massively disconnected from the mood of the country. If Obama was as good as Joe Biden thinks he was, Donald Trump wouldn't have gotten elected. Because you know what? Hillary Clinton ran on that exact same strategy. The strategy of, I will be the continuation of the Obama legacy. Trump running on, make America great again, and Hillary saying, America is already great. So in a weird way, it's the Democrats becoming the conservative party with that argument. Conservative, you know, as defined, don't change stuff too much. Don't change it too much. Well, that's what that is. That's what that argument is. Don't change it too much. Hey, I thought we had a pretty sweet thing going with Obama, so let's go in that direction. It ain't going to work, Joe. It ain't going to work. Now, I, I actually am not in the crowd that thinks Obama was all negative, full stop. No, I think that's actually, um, that's just a not thoughtful way of looking at his presidency. And I did a long breakdown of Obama's presidency. Uh, I think I titled the segment Obama's Report Card or something like that. So go check that out, and I'll give a detailed analysis. Hey, here are all the good things he did. Here are all the bad things he did. Here's his final grade. And you do find plenty on both sides. But listen, the main criticism of Obama is he was elected at a time when we needed a transformative figure in FDR 2.0 in many ways. And he didn't give us that. He just gave us Bill Clinton 2.0. He gave us neoliberal centrism and in many ways, he was an effective manager of the status quo. 
when what really needed to be done is you scrap the status quo, a question some of the fundamental assumptions and roots of the system, change it, and then fix our country uh, in, a, in a serious way. And he didn't do that. So for Joe Biden to run on this, again, I'm perpetually amazed at how unempirical people like this are. Because we have run the experiment, guys. We ran the experiment. What happened? The Democrats lost like 1,000 seats running on this uh, centrist, neoliberal, technocratic, wonky strategy. And, of course, Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump using this exact same strategy. And they just go right back. No, this is what the political playbook says I should uh, do. So this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to run. Guys, throw out the the textbook. Throw out the, the rule book. Donald Trump blew up that system. There are no rules anymore. Donald Trump didn't even do a general election pivot. Like, that's one of the things that you can't question. Like, the strategists think, well, obviously, if the general election pivot, of course, that's what you have to do. Trump didn't even pivot. <laughs> he was saying the same shit in the general that he was saying in the, in the primary, and he won. So this idea of, like, and then the other thing is, to the extent they believe that they should change anything, their argument is, well, Trump won, and he's a right-winger, so if anything, we've got to move further right. Oh, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. It's the populism, stupid. Now, on the right, they're fake populists, and also they mix in a, a heaping dose of bigotry and xenophobia with their fake populism. But on the left, you just have to not be a bigot and be a genuine populist, and that's how you win. And it seems like Joe Biden doesn't get it, but that's, that's actually a good thing. Now, the flip side, though, is that Joe Biden, like it or not, and of course I don't like it, but it's the truth, he actually is a good debater. He destroyed Paul Ryan, ripped his head off, and spit down his neck um, he destroyed Sarah Palin, obviously, but that's a low-hanging fruit. That's not difficult. But I do think he would handle uh, Trump somewhat reasonably well uh, in a debate. Um, sometimes I think he would walk into some goofy traps and, you know, argue like you just heard here, the status quo was actually wonderful. And I don't think that that's a good thing and it, from a substantive perspective, but I think from a stylistic perspective, Uncle Joe comes across as a straight shooter, even though he's really not a straight shooter. Um, now, the final points I'll make real quick are, he's bragging about the Recovery Act, again, largely left behind regular people. And if you don't understand why it's not a good idea to run on that Obama legacy and why it's not a good idea to concede, as he's doing here, the economy's great. That's his concession. His concession is, hey, the economy's great, but it's not because of Trump, it's because of me and because of uh, Barack Obama. That is so, the reality is the exact opposite, man. It's still half of workers in this country that make $30,000 a year or less. It's still 78% of Americans that live paycheck to paycheck. It's still tens of millions of Americans without health insurance. It's still medical bills are one of the top causes of bankruptcies. Um, it's still credit card debt and student loan debt. People are in it up to their eyeballs. So you can't, to argue that, that just shows that he's been, you know, pampered not like regular people. Obviously, he's been. He's vice president. He's been in Washington, D.C. since roughly 1876. So he's disconnected, and he thinks, I could just argue that the economy's good. I'll concede that to Trump, but I'll say it's good because, oh, oh God damn it. That's just a terrible argument. That's just a really bad argument. Um, but then he also says, at the same time he talks about unity in his rally, he also turns around and brags about passing Obamacare with zero Republican votes, to which I respond, 
if you got zero Republican votes, why didn't you guys just pass Medicare for all? You had a supermajority, so you could have got whatever health care reform through that you wanted to, and you picked a right-wing plan. You picked the Heritage Foundation plan, the Mitt Romney plan, the Newt Gingrich plan, the plan that keeps the for-profit health insurance companies intact. Why didn't you just pass Medicare for all? At the very least, why didn't you pass the public option? So that's not something to brag about. That's actually a, a, an argument to be embarrassed about. On top of it, just contradicts your whole thing. Unity, yes, unity. Remember when we destroyed Republicans and got no Republican votes? So it's a contradiction, okay? But putting aside the contradiction, it's embarrassing because that means you should have gotten Medicare for all. And that means at the very least, you should have gotten a public option. And I know what he'd say. He'd fire back and say, but the blue dogs, oh, the blue dogs are going to stop us. Are they a hurdle? Yes. Is it insurmountable? Fuck no. And this is why you need a president who knows strategically how to crack skulls. And that, that's a big uh, point and, and a big thing that's not discussed in politics enough. Is like, even if you have the right philosophy, well, how are you going to get it implemented? And if you don't know how to twist arms, you don't know how to play politics, you don't know how to throw around your weight and use your popularity to your advantage, you don't know how to harness the will of the people, well, then you suck at this. And Joe Biden is well removed from that. Not only does he not want to use that stuff strategically, he doesn't even agree with the fundamental goals that we're pushing for. So now listen, having said all that, as of right now, he is the front runner. We covered a poll that I thought was the most accurate poll I've seen to this point. Um, it had Biden up by about eight on Bernie. Uh, there are some polls that have him up like 20 or 30 points. I think those are absolutely absurd and ridiculous. And usually when you look into the methodology, it really oversamples older voters. So I do think the, the, a more accurate reflection of the race is Biden by about eight points right now. Um, so it really just is on young people across the board to get out there and let this older generation know we're done with your goofy nonsense, your tweaks around the edges when our system is burning down. But there it is. He's officially launched his campaign, and he's going to try the Hillary Clinton 2.0 strategy. Disastrous. Okay, next. Let's go to the Yeti. I have another video on this one. Um, get your cringe face ready because it's going to hit you hard. So New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that he's running for president, and he's already trying to out-Trump Trump. This is really cringeworthy. Check it out. I can't believe it. I just heard that the worst mayor in the history of New York City, and without question the worst mayor in the United States, is now running for president. It will never happen. I'm pretty good at predicting things like that. In Condon, I saw your video, and man, you looked really low energy. And, and you're getting your facts wrong because crime actually has gone down in New York City five years in a row, and our economy is booming. I really think you better rest up because you're going to need it for the election ahead. We're coming for you. 
<laughs> Come on, dog. What are you doing, man? What are you doing? So, first of all, I, the, for him to run shows you his ego is just absurd. He has the largest ego for no fucking reason. Because how many people are in the race right now? I'm pretty sure the number is 3,612. And he's jumping in. Dude, you're at a point where it's you probably won't even make the debates. There are some people who've been running for a hot minute who probably won't even make the debates. So you, you think you're going to get in? And who the fuck, like, what's, who's your constituency? What is it? What's your constituency? Because he thinks he's, like, super progressive, this guy. But in 2016, he endorsed Hillary Clinton over Bernie Sanders. Strike one, you're out. Immediately, all your progressive credentials go out the window. In a, in a race where, I should be clear, in a race where we have people who are actually principled, you got the OG himself, Bernie Sanders, running. You have Tulsi Gabbard running, who actually took a brave stand to support Bernie at a time when, you know, she could have put her, her career first and just shut up, but she didn't. She took a principled stand. Um, we have Elizabeth Warren running, who on tax policy and Wall Street policy is a swashbuckling populist and has the chops to prove it. And, and you're going to jump in and pretend like you're going to be Mr. Progressive, but you undercut your, all your credentials by endorsing Hillary over Bernie. You made an active choice to pick the, the right-wing Democrat over the real deal. So, like, who do you think you're going to get? I don't understand. Like, at least theoretically, some other candidates who are boring and are going to go nowhere have an argument. Like Tim Ryan, for example, can at least make the argument, well, I'm from the Rust Belt, and I'm big on helping, you know, the factory workers and, and, and car workers, and I'm pro-union, and even though I'm kind of centrist, I have the chops to, to pick up people in the Rust Belt where Trump won. Now, again, he's going to get negative 42% of the vote, and he's going nowhere, but at least he has a theoretical argument. Bill de Blasio, the Yeti himself, I, what's your argument? What's your argument? So the left doesn't want you in because we already have our candidates who we want, and you're going to pretend to be progressive, but you picked Hillary over Bernie. And the right is just going to beat up on you all day. And so what's your, what do you do? One of the first things you do when you launch is you try to out-Trump Trump. Bro, what? <laughs> Why would you do that? Why would you? And what, you think you're going to beat him at his game? It's kind of embarrassing, man. Condon? Condon. And you call him low energy? Well, Condon, I know you called Jeb low energy, but in that video, you looked a little low energy. <laughs> Am I doing this well? Am I doing this well? You're just not good at this, man. You can't out-Trump Trump. Now, he does find a way to, like, make everything personal with the other candidates and viciously attack them and get away with it. But for Democrats, there's not going to be a cult of personality like there is on the Republican side. Trump is a cult of personality, and they love that. On, on the Democratic side, we have voters that are not absurd. <laughs> so... They're not, they don't care about your fucking mean tweets and, and your, and your clapbacks. 
if you want to win the Democratic primary, it's got to be more than smoke and mirrors. It's got to be more than trying to out-Trump Trump. Elizabeth Warren tried to out-Trump Trump, and she got obliterated. You need to step to his nonsense with policy substance. Because, in, because then what you do is you basically swat him aside like the petulant child he is throwing a tantrum. It's like, okay, yeah, whatever. Anyway, I'm here to talk about serious issues. So, yeah, call me whatever names you want. Re- release whatever goofy Twitter videos you want to release. But here's what I'm here to do. Cover all Americans with health care. I'm here to increase wages substantially and do that through pro-union legislation, do that through um, a living wage, do that by fighting back against outsourcing and getting rid of our shitty trade deals, renegotiating them and and having trade deals that are pro-worker. And the list goes on and on. You could just hammer him with policy and then he looks like he's petty when he calls you the nicknames and focuses on personality stuff. But when you jump in in his ring, why do you think you can come out of that the victor? You're just doing what he does, and he's better at it. Uh, Condon, you look low energy. Like, at least, if you're going to even try, why would you not come up with your own thing? Like, Condon is goofy, but at least it's unique. You came up with it. It's original. But the low energy thing, you're just saying, hey, this thing you said, I'm going to now take it and put it on you. And he, he doesn't even deliver it well. You could tell that he's acting. And he's like, I am running for president. This is so neato, mama. Bill de Blasio, Jesus Christ, man. What are you doing, man? What are you doing? Stop it. Stop it. Any other Democrat thinking about jumping in? Don't. <laughs> You're going nowhere. The field is, the field is packed. Packed. I'm still amazed that you have like John Delaney and Jay Inslee and Tim Ryan, who I alluded to before, Bill de Blasio. Just clowns. You're jumping in the race. You're going nowhere. Please don't embarrass yourself. Even if they think, hey, I'll jump in to raise my national profile. I don't, I I honestly think you're better off not running at all if you're literally going to end up getting like 1% or less. You're just better off not running at all. If you're going to get 1% or less, like 1% or less, you think that raises your national profile? Only because people are mocking you and they view you as a complete and utter loser. Okay, next. We are going to talk about a Republican who came out for impeachment. What? What? So this is an interesting story. It's a pretty surprising development here on the Republican side on the issue of impeachment. Somebody decided to break ranks. Take a look. The president firing back slamming the first Republican lawmaker to call for his impeachment, calling Congressman Justin Amash a total lightweight, accusing him of courting publicity. If he actually read the biased Mueller report, he would see that it was nevertheless strong on no collusion and ultimately no obstruction. But Amash said he had read the 448-page report. In a 13-tweet thread, the Michigan lawmaker argued special counsel Robert Mueller's report into Russian interference documented impeachable conduct by the president. 
and accused Attorney General William Barr of having deliberately misrepresented the report when he summarized it in March. Contrary to Barr's portrayal, Mueller's report reveals the president engaged in specific action and a pattern of behavior that meet the threshold for impeachment, the congressman wrote. He even accused his fellow Republicans of not having read the report. Amash is a member of the Freedom Caucus, a right-leaning group who typically backs Trump, but he's always blazed his own trail, frequently criticizing the president and fellow Republicans. Mitt Romney says Amash reached a different conclusion than he did on impeachment. I respect him. I think it's a courageous statement. But I, I believe that to make a case for obstruction of justice, uh, you just don't have the elements that are uh, evidenced in this uh, document. But Amash still standing apart from his party. Democrats are divided on pushing impeachment, but Speaker Nancy Pelosi has signaled she may now be open to it as a means of forcing administration officials to comply with the subpoenas of those six House committees investigating Mr. Trump's conduct. So far, the White House is stonewalling any attempts by Democrats to hear from some witnesses or receive documents related to the Russia investigation. So um, the first point to make about this is this is not going to be the dam breaking. This is not going to be the snowball effect. This is not going to be, hey, we got one. Next week we're going to have 14. I think that there will be no other Republicans who call for impeachment, no other elected Republicans who call for impeachment. Um, There's a slight chance you get maybe one or two more, but I would bet a substantial sum that you will never cross like more than three. And I think it's most likely that it just stops with Amash and Amash is the only one who comes out and, and, and says what he said. So that's the bad news for people. I saw that when this story broke, there was a lot of like, like, here we go. It's happening. And I'm here to tell everybody, sorry, I really don't think it's going to go anywhere further. And if I'm wrong, I'll be more than happy to come out here and say I was wrong, but I'm pretty convinced that this is going nowhere and he's the only one who did it now or is going to do it. Having said that, in a weird way, I give Amash a lot of credit and uh, simply based on this fact, he really is like, remember how they used to say about John McCain all the time? Oh my goodness. John McCain. John McCain. He's a maverick. He's such a maverick. Here's like an actual maverick. This is really, really mavericky. And here's why. Politically, what does he have to gain from it? Nothing. Because it's not like, oh, he came out for impeachment and he's also switching parties to become a Democrat, to maybe get elected as a Democrat. He's calling for impeachment and his entire side is going to open up the bowels of hell on his face. Like, they fucking hate this. And I would hate to look at his mentions, you know, the day he called for it, which was, I think, a couple days ago now. Because it would be, you know, Trump's people. Remember, Trump and his own party, about a 90% approval rating. So he was probably just eviscerated, totally decimated in uh, the replies on Twitter. But that's why I respect this. Even though I don't even necessarily agree with Amash on, on the substance. 
but I, that's irrelevant. It, this strikes me as like a very rare and strange principled move from somebody on the right who really is a maverick. And he came out for this for no other reason than he thinks it's the right thing to do, because politically it does not help him at all. It, it massively hurts him. So um, I give him a lot of credit. He's also been interesting on other issues as well. If I'm not mistaken, he's one of the few people who, on the Republican side, we can work with him on uh, foreign policy issues. And that's important. You need those people. You need the Rand Paul types who will throw you a vote every now and then on some non-interventionist stuff like getting out of Yemen. You need even occasionally Mike Lee will, will vote the proper way on some foreign policy issues. He did that uh, with Yemen as well. So we need those people, and Justin Amash is one of those people in the House, and he doesn't, he's not as known as the others like Rand Paul, um, but this shows me he's maybe even leading in that maverick category, if you will, on the Republican side, where he'll just say, oh, fuck party orthodoxy, I'm going with what I want to go with, I'm going with what I believe. And you see this on the Democratic side, you've seen this with Tulsi Gabbard, Ro Khanna, Ilhan Omar, on issues like Venezuela, where leadership is saying, ex-nay on the fucking Venezuela scale stuff. And they're just like, no, I'm against uh, the U.S. intervening, and I'm going to argue for that, and I'm not going to bite my tongue, and I'm right. So that's, you know, that's the approach of, that's the approach of putting principle above politics. And it's interesting to see a guy like Justin Amash do that. Now, having said all that, here's why I don't agree with him on the substance. Or I don't, that's a little too strong. It's not that I don't agree with him. It's that I think it'll be a waste of time. So, like, if the Democrats came forward today and they said, okay, we're going to do impeachment and we're doing it over the emoluments clause uh, of the Constitution, honestly, my response would be, I can't argue against you because it's just true that he's violated the emoluments clause and we can't just let presidents violate the emoluments clause. That's crazy. He's been given a tremendous amount of money from foreign governments, and he's done policy to help them. So that is the textbook definition of the Emoluments Clause being violated. So I can't, of course, go, go ahead. What am I going to do, say no to you? I mean, it just makes sense. If they step forward and said, over Yemen, we're going to impeach Trump, because this is an illegal and offensive war. You'd have to approve it through Congress. You haven't approved it through Congress, so this is deeply illegal and unconstitutional. And also, oh, yeah, by the way, women and children and babies are dying and they're being starved to death and there's a cholera outbreak and we're assisting a terrorist regime. If, if Democrats came out and said that and said, hey, this is why we're impeaching Trump. We have no choice. This is what he's doing on Yemen. We got to stop it. Honestly, my response would be, OK, yeah, I mean, you're right on the substance. What am I going to do? Argue no? No, you're, the evidence is there and you're correct. So. It's not that I'm against impeachment. It's that the way you do it, I think, is massively important. So if they come out and just say, we're going to impeach him over Russia, well, then I go, I can't agree to that because the Mueller report did say, although there were many juicy tidbits in there that were fascinating and are noteworthy and and are worthy of being covered, the bottom line finding was no evidence of collusion. And then on obstruction, he said, I can't decide either way. And what that means is there's certainly stuff that appears to be obstruction. However, I mean, is there intent? We don't know. Because is he obstructing because he thinks the whole thing shouldn't happen in the first place and it's fucking stupid and it's a witch hunt like he kept saying repeatedly? So since he 
thinks the investigation is ridiculous, he's trying to undermine it every turn, or is he doing it because he's trying to hide something? Obviously, he couldn't prove that he was doing it because he was trying to hide something, because then the evidence would have came out for collusion. So I don't think there's enough there on that front to try to impeach. So, and if the Democrats were to try to impeach over that stuff, whether it be collusion or obstruction, I think that 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 will have a backlash effect that will have the opposite of the intended consequence. And what that means is I think you'd see a giant spike of support for Trump. And I think it would be very similar to what happened with Bill Clinton, where, you know, they were impeaching over the fact that he perjured himself. He lied under oath. But, you know, he basically lied under oath to a question that shouldn't have been asked. The question was, um, you know, oh, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Okay, he did, but should that really be an impeachable offense? And I think that the reaction will be very similar if the Democrats were to try to impeach over um, obstruction because Trump, and he's already said it. I saw him tweet it the other day. He said, obstruction, how can I obstruct when there was no evidence of collusion? So I'm obstructing a crime that didn't occur? That makes no sense. So I think that if the Democrats were to go down that road, it would have the opposite of the intended consequence, and it would turn out Trump's base massively, and it would hurt them electorally. So that's why and, – and, but listen, to be fair to Justin Amash, his argument is more of a principled argument. His argument is like, hey, listen, you know, our, our hands are tied here. What, what are we going to do? I think that this is an impeachable offense, so it's almost like they, we, have, we have to do it. It seems like that's his argument, more of a principled argument. And I'm sympathetic to the principled argument. Um, what I'm not sympathetic to are the people who make the argument that it should happen – and that this would somehow help the left, when I actually think it would massively hurt the left. Um, but either way, regardless of the fact that I don't really agree with Justin Amash on the substance of it, I want to give him a lot of credit, because this shows you that he's actually, you know, he's actually making his own mind up, and that's super rare in Washington, way more rare than you would imagine. But the fact that he's willing to sit there, he read through the entire report, he made up his own mind about everything in the report and everything that he's seen play out around it. And he took a step that's something that in no way, shape, or form will help him politically, but he did it because he thought it was the right thing to do. For that, I give him massive, massive credit. All right, next, we are going to defend Tulsi Gabbard. Wait until you get a load of the new hit piece. All right, here we go. So the Daily Beast ran one of the dumbest hit pieces of this election season yet, and it's on Tulsi Gabbard. They say Tulsi Gabbard's campaign is being boosted by Putin apologists. The Hawaii congresswoman is quickly becoming the top candidate for Democrats who think the Russian leader is misunderstood. Now, uh, right up front, let me pose a question to you. 
Do you think that that's something that she said or would say, or is that a categorization of what the writer thinks she would say? Which is it? If you ask Tulsi Gabbard, hey, Tulsi, would you agree with the following? Vladimir Putin is misunderstood. Would Tulsi say, yes, that's a fair summary of my views? Or would she say, no, I wouldn't quite put it like that. Let me tell you exactly what I believe. And then she'd give you an actual nuanced and detailed answer. I know the answer to that question. I think you know the answer to that question. But nonetheless, this mainstream media outlet decided to do a hatchet job and a hacky hit piece where they straw man Tulsi, which is clear. But then also, you'll see how flimsy the overall argument is. It's kind of embarrassing. In fact, it's really embarrassing. So they continue. Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard's campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination is being underwritten by some of the nation's leading Russophiles, weird word, donors to her campaign in the first quarter of the year included Stephen F. Cohen, a Russian studies professor at New York University, and prominent Kremlin sympathizer, Sharon Tennyson, a vocal Putin supporter who nonetheless found herself detained by Russian authorities in 2016, and an employee of the Kremlin-backed broadcaster RT, who appears to have donated under the alias Goofy Grapes. Gabbard is one of her party's more Russia-friendly voices in an era of deep democratic suspicion of the country over its efforts to tip the 2016 election in favor of President Donald Trump. Her financial support from prominent pro-Russian voices in the U.S., is a small portion of the total she's raised, but it still illustrates the degree to which she deviates from her party's mainstream on such a contentious and high-profile issue. Tulsi Gabbard has over 65,000 donors to her campaign, small-dollar donors, because that's how she raises her money, through small-dollar donations, like politicians should raise their money, because then they wouldn't be corrupt, they'll be representing the people and not special interests. Three out of six or more than 65,000 now at this point. They searched through her records to cherry pick a couple where they could make a, a, a convoluted argument to try to say, aha, we got you. We got you because a prominent professor who's upfront and, and straightforward regarding his views and will tell you to your face, his views. He's been on CNN. He's argued about this publicly. Yeah, a professor donated to her campaign. And somebody who is, I guess, a producer at RT donated to her campaign. Okay, this is like next level stupid in terms of the smear. Because I, I don't know if you guys know this. The late, great Ed Schultz was on RT. Was the late, great Ed Schultz just simply, you know, Putin's puppet and doing Putin's bidding across the board? No. No, not at all. You know who else is on RT currently? Larry King. Is Larry King a Putin puppet? There are a lot of... Tom Hartman was on RT. Like, there are a lot of Lee Camp good people telling the truth as they see it on RT. And the idea that you could just... Like, that in and of itself is an argument. Like, oh, she's a producer on RT. And, oh, this Russian studies professor donated to Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, it's almost like maybe he knows a thing or two about Russia that you don't. Because you're not Russian studies professors now, are you? Now, do I agree with Stephen Cohen on everything? No, I don't. 
I don't. And sometimes I do think he goes a little too far um, in his defense of the current Russian government. But having said that, that's irrelevant. Is it like a nefarious thing that he's donated to Tulsi? Not even close. Not even close, man. Not even close. Now, in, with one point, you can destroy this entire hit piece. You know who Vladimir Putin preferred in the 2012 election? Barack Obama over Mitt Romney. Were there people who donated to Barack Obama's campaign who, are, who want to make peace with Russia and who are maybe willing to see um, maybe the issue of NATO from the Russian perspective? Of course there were people who donated to Obama's campaign who believed that stuff. They would never in a million years write a hit piece on Barack Obama because some of his donors, small dollar donors, by the way, because these people were relatively small dollar donors, they would never write a hit piece and argue like, oh, my God, he's, you know, he's going to do, he's a puppet of that government. He's a puppet of Vladimir Putin because he wants peace. He's an apologist because he wants peace. No, they wouldn't do that because that was the standard democratic position up until the 2016 election. Literally in 2008, when it was Barack Obama versus John McCain, Vladimir Putin wanted Barack Obama over John McCain. Why? Because Barack Obama was more pro-peace. He was willing to have these conversations and negotiate and do diplomacy and work with Russia and reset Russian relations. If I'm not mistaken, that's one of the, one of the things he did. Is he said, let's press this reset button, let's start from scratch, and let's make peace. Let's work together. That was Barack Obama's position. I agree with Barack Obama in 2008 and in 2016. Um, he refused, for example, to arm Ukrainian rebels um, because they were fighting Russia. And he said, that's an insane escalation that I'm not okay with. So I think Barack Obama was right about the issue of Russia all along. I do. I totally agree with him on that issue. Now, Tulsi Gabbard just believes the exact same thing Barack Obama believes. But now it's portrayed as nefarious and evil and wrong. And the default setting, this is the important point, the default setting in mainstream media is you better be hawkish and belligerent and aggressive against Russia, and you better agree to a right-wing neocon framing on the issue of Russia. And if you happen to take a relatively small amount of money from people who are nuanced on this issue and are willing to see from both sides, oh my God, you are, uh, your campaign is being boosted by Putin apologists. By the way, it's not, like again, the reason why Putin preferred Obama to Romney is because Obama said, hey, let's make peace. The reason why Putin preferred Trump to Hillary, and he did, by the way, I'm not saying that that's not the case. That certainly is true. But the reason he did is because Trump on the campaign trail repeatedly said, hey, it'd be okay. It'd be nice if we worked with Russia. Hey, it would be nice if, uh, you know, we should stay out of Syria. I, it's none of our business what's going on there. You know, ISIS is there, Al-Qaeda is there. If Russia wants to be there to fight them, by all means, go right ahead. Russia is allied with Syria. They want to fight ISIS there, go, go right ahead. Do we need to waste our money, our resources, our lives in that country? No. So why would Putin prefer Trump? For that reason. <laughs> it's that simple. Hillary was like, let's get more involved in Syria. Trump was like, let's not do that. This is the rhetoric on the campaign trail, okay? On that alone, of course, Putin's going to prefer Trump. Duh. Now, does that mean Trump is wrong in, in expressing that position? Not at all. In fact, I would argue that position is totally correct. We shouldn't use our military unless it's for defensive purposes. 
to do illegal and offensive invasions and bombings and keep doing it. Why? 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 The American people are not okay with it. It hasn't been approved by Congress. There's no reason to do it. We're not the fucking world police, regardless of what these idiots want you to believe. So it's like they think it's a gotcha. It's not even close to a gotcha. And by the way, Donald Trump, when he actually got elected, didn't even follow through on the non-interventionist rhetoric. It was the opposite. We're permanently militarily occupying Syria. He did arm the Ukrainian rebels in a direct escalation with Russia. There's U.S. warships in the Black Sea right by Russia's border. There's a NATO buildup on uh, Putin's border. He tried to fucking axe uh, an oil deal that Germany had with Russia and get it so that Germany has a deal with us instead. He's repeatedly been hawkish and aggressive on the issue of Russia. But instead of these idiots in mainstream media saying, whoa, 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 this is getting scary. You're escalating pretty aggressively with another nuclear power. What do they do? The opposite. They go, you're not escalating enough. Why aren't you being more hawkish? Why aren't you being more aggressive? Oh, you pulled out of the nuclear treaty, which was, you know, something that was overwhelmingly positive that happened at the end of the Cold War. Well, that's, uh, you should go further. And this is, this is what scares me. And Tulsi Gabbard has accurately called this the new Cold War. And she's the only person talking about it. Notice, any time... See, here's, here's the thing. When your arguments are against war, they will portray you as being anti-American and basically working with the enemy or being an apologist for the enemy. That's the old trick. And they're doing it to somebody who literally is a veteran of the U.S. military. It's almost like the military-industrial complex doesn't want her elected. And the mainstream media is doing the bidding of the military-industrial complex and smearing her every which way to Sunday. They can't engage on the actual issue, so they smear your motives. That's the trick here. So I'm upfront about it. I'll come out and say it. We shouldn't be involved in Syria. We shouldn't arm the Ukrainian rebels. We shouldn't have U.S. warships in the Black Sea. We shouldn't have pulled out of the nuclear treaty. I am actually in favor of peace with Russia. <gasps> and then th- this is where they turn around and they accuse me. And I've been accused by, by Louis uh, Mensch, the crazy woman. Uh, I've been accused of being like a Putin puppet or something. And the reason why they do that, again, is because if we were to actually sit down and have a conversation or a debate on those specific issues I laid out, I would win that debate 10 out of 10 times. It wouldn't even be close. I would say, hey, listen, here's why we need to do the things I just laid out. And they can't actually respond on the issue, on the issue, on the issues. So what do they do? Smear your motives. Oh, the reason why you're taking those positions that are totally correct, the reason why you're taking them is because of nefarious evil reasons and there's a puppet master behind the strings pulling your strings and making you believe these things and say these things utter nonsense Tulsi Gabbard's non-interventionist views came first and then yes many people who are in favor of peace and don't want to escalate with Russia decided no donate to her campaign and again relatively small dollar donations this is the This is the dialogue in the country right now. When you are a pro-peace candidate, this is how they come for you. They pretend you're basically in bed with the enemy. 
Think back to the Iraq War. They did it with the Iraq War, the people who were suspicious of the Iraq War. They said, you're, you're Saddam Hussein apologists. You're dictator lovers. That's exactly what they said. And now they're doing it to Tulsi. They're doing it to Bernie, too, by the way. And they're doing it to others who speak up on this issue. They did it to Ro Khanna the other day. They accused them of being Russian apologists, dictator lovers, um, you know, Maduro lovers. If you're against intervention in Venezuela, if you're against intervention in Iran, if you're against escalating with Russia, they will smear you till the cows come home. But they do that because they have no argument, so they have to smear. Because if they actually engage on the issue, they will get their clocks cleaned. Okay, next speech. Take a quick break after this. <clears throat> so Bernie Sanders released an education plan recently, and um, it is really, really badass. Senator Bernie Sanders unveiled his education plan in a speech Saturday in South Carolina calling for a ban on for-profit charter schools, an increase in teacher pay to no less than $60,000, and universal school meals. <laughs> the release of the policy proposal, which the campaign refers to as the Thurgood Marshall Plan for Public Education and Educators, is pegged to the 65th anniversary weekend of the Supreme Court's landmark Brown versus Board of Education decision, which desegregated public schools. He's a heavy hitter with policy, man. That's what he is. I love every part of that. A ban on for-profit charter schools, because they're very predatory, by the way. Um, I've read countless stories about just how terrible they are. An increase in teacher pay to no less than 60 grand. Super badass. You know, in a world that made sense, a job like a teacher would be viewed as, like, really prestigious and important, and they'd be compensated very well. But unfortunately, we have a system where that's not necessarily the case. You have assholes who push numbers around on computer screens and work for banks and contribute very little positive to the economy. Those are the ones who get compensated a ridiculous amount. Whereas teachers, you know, are barely getting by. Um, and also the idea of universal school meals. Listen, like, people... There are some people who mock ideas like this, but my response is, what the fuck do you want your taxpayer dollars to go towards? What do you want it to go towards? I, I mean, I'll tell you, and I've said it repeatedly, I, I would be happy to pay my taxes. I would pay my taxes with a smile on my face if I knew that my tax money was going towards health care for everybody, pharmaceutical drugs for everybody who needs it, you know, free school lunch, um, fully functioning infrastructure and, and, and beautiful new schools, beautiful new airports. If we were, if our tax money was going towards stuff like this, I'd be so happy. Who the fuck is going to sit there and get angry at the idea of like, oh, yeah, that's what you want to do? You want to feed kids in school? That's what you want to do, huh? You want to waste my money by feeding kids in school? I mean, there are going to be some people who say that, but that's such a fringe, tiny minority that they're irrelevant and they're really stupid and they're almost, they, they basically... What's the word I'm looking for? Self-disenfranchise. That's what they do. They self-disenfranchise. 
They're like, I'm so stupid, you should pay no attention to me. Here, let me make an argument for you to pay no attention to me. Oh, you want to feed kids? Is that what you want to do? Yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. I'm against that. Well, congratulations on being a massive dipshit. Thank you very much. So it's just, he nails it. He nails it yet again. The plan also mandates that charter schools comply with the same uh, oversight regulations as public schools, to which I say, holy shit, that wasn't already the case? I mean, think about that. We have for-profit charter schools, and the rules and regulations are nearly non-existent. And Bernie's like, um, no, how about we have a system where you have to abide by the same rules and regulations? Well, yeah, because those rules and regulations exist for a reason in, in public schools. So for-profit charter schools should have to abide by the same shit. Well, he bans the for-profit ones, but so badass. I love that. Um, he also mandates that at least half of charter boards are composed of teachers and parents. And he mandates that these schools disclose their financial interests. Um, and he also incentivizes charter school teachers to unionize, and the bill restricts CEO pay. This is why we call him dad. He is the absolute dad of American politics. Nails it virtually every time. This is a no-brainer. And listen, in my mind, the conversation that needs to be had with Bernie more than any other is more on electoral strategy or actually, no, legislative strategy because I just want to see him be able to actually implement all these awesome things that he's fighting for. And that requires being on point with how you deal with the opposition party, how you deal with Democrats who break ranks. Like, you can, I'm optimistic that we can get a lot of these awesome policies done. It's just a matter of going about it the right way. And I don't know. I think he's closest to being correct on those things as well, but I don't know how close he is to being correct on those issues. So hopefully we'll see. But it's stuff like this, which is why, you know, I'm proud to call myself a Bernie Sanders supporter. And I hope all of you are too. All right, it is break time, beach. When we come back, the New York Times has a chilling report on what a Navy SEAL is responsible for doing. You are not going to want to miss this shit. And then later on, um, Brett Stevens, a conservative New York Times writer, shits on millennials in a really stupid article. So we're going to rip that article to shreds. So do not go anywhere. We have all that and much, much more. We will be right back.
We are back. Bitch. All right. <clears throat> Let's keep it going. We'll get to the New York Times story in a second on uh, this Navy SEAL and how he is a war criminal, quite literally. All right, here we go. Live on air, I will have a sour candy. I'm acting like eating a sour candy is the same as the shit they used to do on Fear Factor. (laughs) Where Joe Rogan would be like, all right, and today you guys are going to eat cow balls. Who wants a nice cow ball sack? Anybody? Anybody? And when you're done with that, you have to snort emo shit. <laughs> emo feces, anybody? Anybody? Anybody want some? <laughs> this is just a sour candy, but anyway. These are, these are the ones that we had back in the day when I was in grade school. People would like have competitions. Well, how many can you have at once? I don't remember what uh, my number was, but these are sour, but I've always, it's weird. I don't like spicy food very much. Like I can't handle it, but I do like sour shit, which is weird because my argument against spicy food has always been, I don't want to be in pain while I eat, but it's like, well, that's kind of what happens with sour stuff. You get a little bit of like, here's your watermelon flavor. Mmm. Yeah, baby. You know what this also reminds me of a little bit? When you have Listerine, when you use Listerine, you know how you get that, like, stinging feeling for a little bit, and you're sitting there like... "Mm." Eventually, you beat the stinging feeling, but nonetheless, you have the stinging feeling. Mm. This was maybe poorly planned out because now I got to do stories and I got a fucking sour candy in my mouth. <laughs> I got it. Let me spit this thing out. Mm. Okay. I did get that feeling. I did get that pretty powerful sour sense. All right, here we go. Hide the kids because this is a scary story. So the New York Times has a chilling report on what a Navy SEAL is responsible for doing. And um, do yourself a favor here and hang in until the end because there's a devastating update to this story that you're not going to want to miss. So take a look. Navy SEALs were warned against reporting their chief for war crimes. Stabbing a defenseless teenage captive to death, picking off a school-age girl and an old man from a sniper roost. A sniper's roost? Not sure I've ever seen that word before. Indiscriminately spraying neighborhoods with rockets and machine gun fire. Navy SEAL commandos from Team 7's Alpha Platoon said they had seen their highly decorated platoon chief commit shocking acts in Iraq, and they had spoken up repeatedly. But their frustration grew as months passed 
and they saw no sign of official action. Tired of being brushed off, seven members of the platoon called a private meeting with their troop commander in March 2018 at Naval Base Coronado near San Diego. According to a confidential Navy a confidential Navy criminal investigation report obtained by the New York Times, they gave him the bloody details and asked for a formal investigation. But instead of launching an investigation that day, the troop commander and his senior enlisted aide, both longtime comrades of the accused platoon leader, Special Operations Chief Edward Gallagher, warned the seven platoon members that speaking out could cost them and others their careers, according to the report. Whoa, they go on. Two SEAL snipers told investigators that one day from his sniper nest, Chief Gallagher shot a girl in a flower print hijab who was walking with other girls on the riverbank. One of those snipers said he watched through his scope as she dropped, clutching her stomach, and other girls dragged her away. Another day, two other snipers said the chief shot an unarmed man in a white robe with a wispy white beard. They said the man fell, a red blotch spreading on his back. Now, he also went on to murder somebody with a hunting knife. So they think that this guy's a terrorist. There's a firefight. They injure the guy. Then they capture the guy. The guy's like sitting in the medic tent, surrounded by medics, and there are other uh, Navy SEALs there. This dude walks up, takes out a knife, repeatedly stabs him in the neck, kills him, then takes a picture of him, sends it to his buddy, and brags about it. So uh, this, this is a long article. You should read it for yourself. I'll leave it, leave it in the video description box. I just gave you some key portions that really impacted me. Um, and it's a maddening story because what you see is there were some Navy SEALs who were like, whoa, whoa. And because this guy wasn't, he was so unhinged and so savage that even though the culture of the Navy SEALs are like, hey, these are your brothers and you defend them at all costs. It was so egregious and so over the line that they were like, I, I mean, we have, to, we have to do something about this. So they went up the chain of command and every time they went up the chain of command, they were basically told, fall in line and know your place. And then the only reason we even learned about this and the only reason why this guy was caught eventually and he was arrested is because they said, listen, if you don't act on this, we're number one going to the highest possible level in the Navy. I don't know what that is. Is it Admiral? I, I really don't know, to be fair. Um, we're going to the highest top brass in the Navy. That's point number one. Point number two is we're going to the media. Like, we're going to tell the media everything. And so it was only at that point that they got him. And what's amazing is that they submitted in evidence, you see, this dude literally had text conversations with uh, other people where he bragged about murdering people. Like I said, he took a picture of the guy he murdered who was sitting on the table. But on top of that, there were just endless stories about he literally killed a a woman walking, minding her business in a flower hijab, just murdered her, murdered an old man for no reason. He did it all the time. He did it all the time. He was ordering, you know, some of them say when they were engaged in a mission, 
he would just point to random houses and be like, hit that house with a rocket launcher. And they'd be like, what? And he'd be like, hit it with a rocket launcher. And, you know, they don't know. Are there civilians inside? I don't know. Maybe. Probably. But he would just say, yeah, I don't know. Shoot that. He would go shoot across the river and just light everything up with a machine gun. The dude is, he's barbaric. He's savage. He's genuinely unhinged. Genuinely a murderer. He's just a murderer. He's a brutal, vicious murderer. He's a terrorist because he's killing for political reasons. Because we're there for political reasons. So I don't... A, a little part of me was like, oh, thank God there were other Navy SEALs who were like, we got to fucking stop this guy. But then the other part of me was like, but exactly what I thought would happen is what happened, where they were stonewalled at every layer. At every level, they were blocked by their higher-ups, and the higher-ups protected the murderer. And how much of this is going on that we don't even know about in the military? So this is one story that broke through because this guy was too egregious. But how many similar cases where maybe there's somebody who's not as brutal and upfront about it as this guy, but there's like, you know, he's half as brutal as this guy. And he's killed civilians, but, you know, he's not, you know, bragging about it and, and showing pictures and, and killing women who are obviously innocent civilians. How many of them are just killing males of a certain age who happen to be innocent civilians but it's enough, there's enough plausible deniability where the people in the unit go, eh, was, you know, whatever, it was probably, probably a bad guy. Like, how much of that is really going on? And then, you know, it hits you. Well, this is how we got a situation where you had minimum, minimum 200,000 innocent civilians killed in Iraq. That's minimum. Estimates go up to a million. This is how you get a situation like that. Because you do have people like this who join the military because they have a fucking bloodlust. And then they get sent to these countries which did not attack us. They're illegal and offensive invasions, violating international law. And they do stuff like this. See, this is what happens, by the way, when, when you get to a point where you're so drunk on American exceptionalism that you truly believe that, well, no, we're the good guys by definition. So it almost doesn't matter what we do. We know we're on the right side. We know, well, we sort of mean well, right? And so then you do stuff like this, and they don't realize, like, wait, we're the baddies here. We're the evil ones here. There's a line that's been crossed. Illegal and offensive wars, and then wantonly murdering civilians on purpose. That's as bad as it gets. That is as bad as it gets. It's, it's really hard to wrap your mind around how terrible this is. So in response to this guy being arrested, and by the way, should he have been arrested? How are we even having this conversation? There are just endless examples, example after example after example. He murdered an old man who was walking minding his business. He murdered a woman in a flower hijab. He murdered somebody sitting on the fucking medic's table and took a picture of it and bragged about it. Again, the list goes on and on. I'm just giving a few examples. I, you know, I would shudder at the thought, how many people did this guy actually murder in total in his career? It's got to be hundreds, right? At least, at least. So they arrest him. You know what happens? Fox News says to the family, oh, come on, come on air. And they start acting like he didn't do anything wrong and he's a hero. 
He's a veteran. He's a military veteran, and he served this country honorably. They literally go on Fox News, and they start arguing that this guy's a hero. They open up, you know, a, a fundraising page for this guy's uh, defense. It's raised at least 375000 375000 as of the time I read the article, that was days ago. This probably is well above that now, but at least $375,000 has been raised for this guy's defense fund when he's a, a brutal, savage murderer. They, and they also have apparel. They sell free Eddie t-shirts, because again, his name was Chief Edward Gallagher. Now, I told you to hang in here till the end because there's an important um, update to the story. There are reports that are coming out now that Donald Trump will pardon him. These are people who are drunk on the idea of American exceptionalism. No matter what we do, we're the good guys. Just so you know, another term for exceptional is supreme. So another term for American exceptionalism is American supremacist. And if you're an American supremacist, that means you very clearly do not believe in equality. Equality means we're all equal. You know, somebody in Thailand is worth the same as myself and as you. That's equality. We're all equal. Certainly should be equal under the law. If you believe in American supremacism, you, by definition, do not believe in equality. And these are people who are drunk on American supremacism. And they think, I don't know. We're in Iraq. It must be because we're the good guys and we're the world police and we're, we're trying to protect the world order or some goofy bullshit. It's certainly not about oil. Definitely not about oil. Definitely not about geopolitical dominance. Definitely not about that. But okay, we illegally and offensively invaded this country and... If I start picking off civilians with a fucking sniper and murdering people, what are you going to do? Obviously, I'm not a bad guy. I'm just a misunderstood good person who happens to partake in illegal offensive invasions where I murder civilians on purpose. No, this is, if you can, for just a second, step back from the, the cultural brainwashing that we've all had being raised in this country, as most of my audience is, not all of you, but most of you, If you could take a couple steps back and go, okay, hold on here. Let me try to take away all my biases. Let me de-brainwash myself for a second. And let me just look at this objectively. You will walk away with that scary light bulb moment where you realize that Noam Chomsky is 100% right on foreign policy. And Noam Chomsky, you know, says very clearly, hey, if the Nuremberg laws were upheld, every post-World War II president would have been hanged. Because we routinely violate international law, do war crimes, and in the case of Trump, quite literally, will bend over backwards to defend the American supremacist terrorist murderers who took away the lives of innocent people minding their business. Listen, if you happen to believe, wow, what? no, they were bad enough, they were with the enemy enough, there is no other word for that but flat out bigotry, and dehumanization. That's what that is. 
no, guilty enough, guilty enough, guilty enough. They're brown people, and they're in another country, and I don't need to think about it. It's all icky, okay, some bad stuff happened, but whatever. We meant well, so it doesn't count, doesn't count. Like I said, then you don't believe in equality. You don't believe in justice. You've sufficiently dehumanized these people, and you don't believe in people having consequences for their actions. Flip the script. China invades the U.S. with some cockamamie uh, rationale. They set up a base in Texas, and then Chinese soldiers use snipers to pick off old people and women walking the street. And then the Chinese president says, let's pardon them. They did nothing wrong. We got a lot of work to do, guys, because this is the norm. This is the way it works now. And we need to get back to a place of sanity and reason and morality and justice and ethics where it's we treat the law like it should be treated, which is we follow it as well. Nobody's above the law. That's the way it's supposed to work in theory. Nobody's above the law. So we need to actually abide by international law. Because when we don't, when we start cutting some corners, when we start you know, doing illegal invasions here and there, and stuff like this happens. And all of a sudden, we should all be deeply, deeply ashamed of what our country's done with our money and in our name. go a little bit lighter now. That was heavy, I admit. Very, very heavy. So Brett Stevens is a conservative and a New York Times author, and he wrote one of the dumbest things I've ever read recently. And um, it'll be no surprise to anybody that It involved millennial bashing. In fact, that was the whole point. The whole point of the article was to bash millennials. So let's go through some of this. He says, this is the title. Dear millennials, the feeling is mutual. Joe Biden dares to take offense at those who specialize in being offended. He says, earlier this month, a video of Joe Biden saying he had no empathy for the younger generation that tells me how tough things are resurfaced on social media. The video was over a year old, but it elicited predictable howls from members of the dist demographic. Quote, nothing says perfect candidate to lead the most powerful nation in the world like I have no empathy, wrote someone with the Twitter handle at anarcho priapism. <laughs> That's pretty funny. My own reactionary reaction was different. Okay, I thought I could definitely vote for Joe, provided he has the medal to stand his ground. In this election cycle, No faction on the Democratic side more richly deserves rebuking than the one Biden singled out, which is not, of course, anywhere close to the entire millennial generation, roughly 80 million strong, or their younger siblings in Generation Z. But it is that part of these younger generations that specializes in histrionic self-pity and moral self-righteousness, usually communicated via social media with maximum snark, gawker, spawn, and huff Poe twerps, this especially means you. 
Now, he goes on to bring up, you know, offended students on college campuses, which is, you know, their go-to. That's all, all dialogue in certain uh, circles in U.S. politics comes back to the offended uh, college campus people. Um, but he finishes with this. The sensible center of America, that is the people who choose presidents in this country, wants to see Donald Trump lose next year but not if it means empowering the junior totalitarians of the left. Now is Biden's chance to make it clear he's just the man to fulfill that hope. So this is how deep the analysis goes for a guy like Brett Stevens. I will support you for president if you will just shit on those college kids. I didn't say it. He said it. I just read it to you. He said it. And he's saying hey, listen, we all want Trump to lose, but only, only if, you know, whoever else would win would put the junior totalitarians in their place. So in other words, if, if the, none of the Democrats are going to put the junior totalitarians in their place, well, then I'm fine with Trump winning. What? Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to have to explain how you connect those dots. Because Donald Trump, for example, pulled out of the Iran deal, which is pushing us closer to war with Iran. It looks like his administration wants to do it. Neocons, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, they're literally trying to push us to war. He's backing an illegal regime change coup in Venezuela, which is going to, by the way, further the um, immigration crisis and the refugee crisis. Um, We're still bombing Iraq and Afghanistan. He did a massive tax cut for the rich, and deregulated Wall Street further, which is leading to a further boom-bust cycle. We're going to have another explosion in the economy, as we're seeing right now in terms of the stock market, and then it's going to tank again at some point. He's absolutely destroyed the EPA, the FDA. They're arguing that the FDA doesn't have the right to regulate death penalty drugs, so that Food and Drug Administration doesn't have the ability to regulate drugs. I can sit here all day and just ring off policy after policy after policy that the Trump administration has implemented or is trying to implement that destroys the country. I mean, we're talking about since he's been elected, three million people have lost their health insurance. Again, the list goes on and on. I can go on and on here. But Brett Stevens' analysis is, let me read it again. The sensible center of America, that is the people who choose presidents in this country, want to see Donald Trump lose next year but not if it means empowering the junior totalitarians of the left. So, you know, the Democrat better stand up to those damn fucking millennials, and if they don't, well, then maybe it's okay that Trump wins. See, here's what this guy misses. There is a fine line between petty authoritarian social justice warrior campus kid whining and crying and bitching and moaning and trying to censor you or deplatform you and young person who is correctly and accurately calling out your dumb ass for saying dumb shit. In Brett Stevens' mind, no, there is no, that's the same thing. <laughs> so when somebody, so when Twitter lights into Brett Stevens because Brett Stevens has repeatedly argued that climate change isn't really happening. That's not, oh my God, this parade of totalitarian, you know, 
millennials coming after me. No, no, no. That is people who are intelligent and people who are correct, who are saying to you, hey, man, you're a dipshit. Hey, man, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You say really, really stupid shit, but you think you're genius. You're not genius. You're not even close to genius. So, but again, it, for him, it's a defense mechanism. Just lump them all in. So if there's a pink-haired kid trying to ban conservative speakers on college campuses and deplatform, well, that's the same thing as somebody who's accurately calling me out for being wrong about fucking 80% of the shit I talk about. And by the way, man, the reason why, there's a substantive reason why the thing that Joe Biden said is terrible. You said it yourself, there's 80 million millennials in this country about. And when you say, I have no empathy for the people I'm supposed to be representing, what does that mean? What are you going to do? Well, you're quite literally not going to govern in their best interest. You just said you're not going to. You just said you have no empathy. So when one of the 80 million people comes to you and say, hey, man, listen, we got this serious problem. Let me break it down for you. Here's what, what I'm facing. Here's why that's not okay. Joe Biden's thought process is, the default setting is, I, I have no empathy for you. Are you talking? Why are you talking? Step aside. I'm not interested in what you're saying. You want me to fix your problems? I don't even view what you're telling me as you having a problem. I don't agree that it's a problem. I think you need to shut the fuck up and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you entitled little bitch. Now, that's his reaction. That's his reaction. Meanwhile, we are the generation, mind you, that many of us, including myself, we graduated into the worst economy since the Great Depression. That's when I graduated, 2010, the height of the Great Recession. So my generation, our generation, most of you listening right now, the demographics show the overwhelming number. Credit card debt out the wazoo. Um, insane, insane amounts of student loan debt that they're struggling with and hold, holding them back massively. Stagnant wages since the 1980s. The fact that it was the older generation that started two massive illegal wars and put them on the credit card, okay? And we're still at bombing those countries, and in total it's eight countries right now. We have a crumbling infrastructure. Half of workers making $30,000 a year or less, many of them are millennials. The average net worth of people under 35 is $11,000. There are real problems, Brett, that we're dealing with. He makes it seem like all of our problems, he has this stereotype of millennials. Like, all of us are sitting around going, I can't believe they didn't put a gay character in the new Disney movie. I can't believe that Ben Shapiro is going to give a speech at the University of Massachusetts. There's like not even 1% of millennials, Brett, are, are talking about that shit and care about that shit. You know what the rest of us care about? Real world problems. Real world problems. We're also the generation that you guys willy-nilly sent to go fight and die in an illegal and offensive war. And then when we speak up, I have no empathy for you. That's, I don't have any empathy for you whatsoever. Mass incarceration massively affects our generation. Empathy, I don't have any empathy for you. Biden was right to say he has no empathy for 80 million people who he's going to want to represent as president. You want to represent these people and you're telling them, I have no empathy for you. Well, then you're not going to be a good leader because you're not interested in fixing the problems that affect us because you don't even view them as problems. You view us as whiny little bitches. 
When in reality, and the, this is the irony of it all, you're the whiny little bitch, Brett. You are. Joe Biden is. You're whiny little bitches. Because everything, it's a knee-jerk reactionary response all the time. No, no. What you're saying is illegitimate. I'm not going to listen to it because it's illegitimate. So I have no empathy for you. Can you just relax for like three seconds and maybe hear us out and then make up your mind? No, no. Biden's right. He has no empathy and he better stand his ground. And this whole article was, was um, Brett Stevens saying people are mean to me on social media. That's, that's the underlying thing going on here. That's why he's pissed. That's why he wrote this article. He has no empathy for millennials because he's a joke on Twitter. People fucking rip into him daily because he always says dumb shit. And instead of reading it and going, okay, you know, maybe I'm being a little silly here on this point or this point, he doesn't do any of that. There's no self-reflection. It's all a defense mechanism, and he just swats it aside. And he, now I like it when a politician says they have no empathy for you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Damn near 80% of the country is living paycheck to paycheck. Like I said, credit card debt, massive amounts, student loan debt, massive amounts, wages uh, stagnant, tens of millions without health insurance. And your reaction is to trivialize the issues that all young people are facing and act like you're all just entitled and nobody should have empathy for you because obviously all you care about is like silly nonsense issues. No, actually, you're the one who cares about silly nonsense stuff. Because your article isn't touching on any real issues. Your, your article is just fucking low-level millennial bashing, which is the easiest shit and the dumbest shit I've ever seen in my life. Okay, next. We're going to talk about John Bolton. He argued for lying on purpose. This was relatively interesting. Okay, here we go. So John Bolton was on Judge Napolitano's show on Fox Business. This is years back, but it resurfaced because it's totally relevant now. Um, he said some stuff here that's going to give you chills. Watch. I want to make the case for secrecy in government when it comes to the conduct of national security affairs, and, and possibly for deception where that's appropriate. You know, Winston Churchill said during World War II that in wartime, truth is so important it should be surrounded by a bodyguard of lies. Do you really believe that? Absolutely. You, you would lie in order to preserve the truth. If, if I had to say something I knew was false to protect American national security, I would do it. I don't think we're often faced with that difficulty. But would I lie about where the D-Day invasion was going to take place to deceive the Germans? You better believe it. Why do people in the government think that the rules of society or the laws don't apply to them? because they are not dealing in the civil society we live in under the Constitution. They are dealing in an anarchic environment internationally where different rules apply. But you took an oath to oppose the Constitution. The Constitution mandates certain openness and certain fairness. You're willing to do away with that in order to achieve
achieve a, a, a temporary military goal? And I think, as Justice Jackson uh, said in a famous decision, the Constitution's not a suicide pact. But you took an oath to it. That, that's exactly right. And I think defending the United States from foreign threats uh, does require actions that in a normal business environment in the United States we would find unprofessional. Yeah. I don't make any apology for it. I From the horse's mouth, he said, if I had to lie to protect national security, I would do it. But see, John, therein lies the problem is that you play loose with what is considered actual national security. Does anybody in their right mind actually believe that Iran is about to attack the United States of America? Does anybody believe that? No. The neocon's neocon doesn't believe that. You don't believe that. I, I, is there a chance he believes that? No, I can't imagine that he believes that. So in other words, what he does is he uses that as a veil. He uses it as a, a, a cover story for why he wants to topple these regimes. He pretends he hides behind. Well, me? No, I'm only in favor of doing all this stuff for national security. So that means the underlying argument has to be, well, I'm, I want to protect this country, and that's why I want to topple Iran. But again, there's no, they're just simply not going to attack us. That's ridiculous. That's preposterous. That's beyond absurd. So what's the real reason? Well, my guess is that John Bolton, and this is the neocons, you know, worldview, they think that America ha- is rightfully the world's sole superpower and the world's police. And so we get to use the world as our playground to fit our purposes. And our purposes are oftentimes, in the case of Afghanistan, hey, we need more minerals. Minerals are used in many products, including phones. They have trillions of dollars of mineral wealth in Afghanistan. Okay, so we got to go to Afghanistan. We'll, we'll use the cover story of, oh, we're fighting terrorists, but minerals is a big part of it. In Iraq, oil. You know, there massive increase in oil production after we invaded Iraq, after we controlled uh, large swaths of territory in Iraq. Uh, the military-industrial complex. War is very profitable for a lot of people. So that's another thing. He thinks, okay, well, we can... J- just like way back in the day, the banana wars. We literally did wars to jack bananas from South American countries. So this is really... We're doing it for American hegemony and American corporatocracy. And a guy like John Bolton is a deep believer in American exceptionalism, which is American supremacism, which is, fuck you, fall in line, we're the boss. So Iran's not playing ball. Iran is not, you know, being a good little puppet and following orders. So we want to topple the government. Venezuela, they're not, they're not following orders. We want to topple their government. And isn't it funny, they always trot out the, but they're dictators argument, but they ignore the fact that we back 73% of the world's dictators. They ignore the fact that we prop up Saudi Arabia. So it's, there is no logic, there is no consistency, unless you begin to realize it's not about protecting people or human rights. We violate human rights all the time. John Bolton violates human rights all the time. But he actually says it there. He says he's arguing for secrecy in government and for deception. Now, again, his thing is... I'm. But it's lying to protect national security, but we just established it's not really about national security. So now it's lying just to meet his goals, to meet his ends. 
and is it lying so we can continue to do offensive wars to jack natural resources? Yes. Yes. Is it lying so we continue to prop up puppet governments that serve our interests and screw over the people in their own respective countries? Yes. So ultimately, you have a fundamentally evil character here who's willing to lie to suit his purposes and to suit American supremacism and geopolitical dominance and hegemony. And he doesn't care about innocent people who are killed, lives who are destroyed, countries whose futures are stolen from them. He doesn't care about the supposed independence of sovereign nations. He said it, man. He said it. He's arguing for deception. Now, I say that to say this. They're going to keep trying to build a case for Iran. And I'm telling you beforehand, not after, beforehand, they're going to do some sort of staged bullshit or just flat-out lie where they say, Oh, Iran crossed the line and they did this thing. They will present no evidence. The dipshit mainstream media will run with it as if it's true. And they will build the case further for an actual war with Iran. They literally drew up plans of 120,000 ground troops to go do a war with Iran. He wants to do it. Now he's just got to build the case. And the mainstream media is going to go right along with his nonsense. And he's just going to be like, I can't believe they did this. And the government will pretend, oh, my God, Iran did that. And they have to make an argument that. They're continually attacking, like, Saudi Arabia or Israel or us, or all three. And they will continue to make those arguments and try to build a case for war. And it will be, again, you heard it from the horse's mouth, he's arguing for deception, for lying. He's in favor of lying. If it fits what he perceives he wants the ends to be, the ends justify the means to John Bolton. So I don't care, i got to lie to get the end goal of regime change in Iran, I'll lie. I don't give a fuck. He said it. He said it, and you just saw it. All right, let me take my final break real quick. When we come back, I got televangelists for you. I got more Trump corruption for you. And then I got a hilarious story about Trump golfing that you are not going to want to miss. This made me laugh. It really is like classic Trump. Stay right there. We'll be right back with that and much, much more.
Son of a bitch. All right, we're back, everybody. We're here. Um, a little bit of a throwback secular talk segment here for y'all. And by that, I mean we're going to go after some religious lunatics. Actually, I have quite a bit to look forward to because there are two segments where I'll be going after religious lunatics in this block. Okay, where's my video for this? Pastor Jim Baker is um, the target in this one. So some televangelists are all in on the pro-Trump grift, and uh, they came up with what I think is their goofiest idea yet. Take a look. coins and the coins they argue protect Donald Trump and it's a quote point of contact where your prayers and others prayers go to God or angels or whatever supernatural goofy nonsense they're talking about and as a result of your prayers and this coin, it's a point of contact where Donald Trump will be protected and Donald Trump will be saved. For the life of me, I don't understand why they don't just say, hey, we have these pro-Trump coins. Aren't they cool? Buy them if you want. Because if they did just that, I wouldn't even be doing this segment because that's just expected. Like, oh, okay, so you have, you know, a, a massively right-wing televangelist show, and they're selling pro-Trump coins. File that under whatever, like totally expected, easy. But it's that they're selling these coins, they're $45, and they're saying, oh, this this gets Jigglypuff in space to like really look after and protect Trump, dog. I mean, you gotta, you gotta understand something, man. We got our space wizard 
24-7 on guard duty. You know what I'm saying? That's what's happening here. Why? Why the egregious lie along with it? Just sell the coin. Just sell the coin. You'll still sell plenty of coin. The people, let me, let me tell you something. The people who watch this show seriously are probably going to buy whatever the fuck you, you put out there. The people who watch a goofy-ass televangelist show, seriously, are probably going to be like, I don't care what you're selling me. I'll take it. I'll take it. But they had to go that extra layer of like, fuck you, con artist, charlatan nonsense, and say, yeah, I don't know, it protects Trump or something. It's a point of contact with the supernatural, and God will look after Trump. But you have to buy our coin for that. Uh... Come on, man. What are you doing? Look at it. Look at that shit. And, I mean, I, how can I get through this segment without talking about how these are a bunch of Christians and they've now come full circle from the Bill Clinton days and they're like, do I give a flying fuck that he's a massive philanderer cheating on his wife all the time? Nope. He had sex with a porn star. <laughs> it was a porn star. These guys, with the Bill Clinton story, they were like, oh, we need honor and integrity back in the White House. And they use the private lives of public figures, they use that as an accurate measure of the quality of the character. So the argument is, well, obviously Bill Clinton's a piece of shit. He was cheating on his wife. And your private life is a good reflection of your public life. And this is, this is you know, this is a sin. This is stepping out of line with God's rules. The fuck, man? What's wrong with them? But with Trump, they're like, I don't eat anything. So you grab women by the pussy. So what, bro? Who, so what? Who cares? You grab women by the pussy? There's nothing wrong with that. He's hanging out on a bus, talking about grabbing pussies and shit, having sex with porn stars and cheating nonstop. What? He's the chosen one from God, and we need God to protect him. Listen, you know what this shows you more than anything? The religion of republicanism overrides their religious belief in Christianity. Because they'll just work backwards from their conclusion nonstop. Like, one of the first acts, uh, foreign policy acts that Trump did as president was a, a raid that Obama said no to because even for Obama, it was like, this is not solid and it can go wrong in a million ways. And it's not like Obama was, like, really careful. His drone death rate was through the roof. But even this raid was so bad that Obama was like, I, no, I can't approve it. Trump gets in there, approves the raid. In that raid, they end up killing a young girl, like a, a little girl. And these guys, first of all, they don't know that. Second of all, if they did know that, they'd be like, I, she was with the enemy or something. I don't know. I'm on, I'm on Trump's side, so I back him. Oh. Uh, Three million people lost health insurance in Trump's first year in office. Is that something Jesus would do? Is that Jesus' thing? Like, yeah, I don't care. Fucking kick people off health insurance. Deregulate the health insurance industry. I don't care. Fuck them. I could give you a list of a thousand things. Would Jesus cut taxes for the rich? 
and they just swat it all aside. <laughs> swat it all aside, because, I don't know, he's chosen by God, because he's a Republican, and I'm a Republican, and we love him. Buy my $45 coin, because it connects you with, uh, you know, Space Wizard, and it'll protect him or something. I don't know. Come on, give me money. Give me money, give me money, give me money. Okay, next. All right, some Trump corruption for you. So stories of Donald Trump corruption are continuing to slowly but surely roll in. In 2016 and 2017, computer systems that screen for potential money laundering at Deutsche Bank flagged transactions conducted by legal entities owned by President Donald Trump and White House advisor Jared Kushner as suspicious. Anti-money laundering specialists at the bank took note and recommended that the transaction be reported to a financial crimes watchdog at the U.S. Treasury Department. But executives at Deutsche Bank dismissed the recommendations, and the report compiled by the specialist was never sent to the government. That's according to an exclusive report by the New York Times' David Einrich, which raises questions about the relationship between Trump and Deutsche Bank, and that has also opened up yet another set of questions about potential corruption and conflict of interest in the White House. According to the Times, five current and former bank employees claim that Deutsche Bank chose to ignore the concerns raised by anti-money, by the anti-money laundering specialist unit. Whoa. So now this story comes at the same time that this comes. Steven Mnuchin is refusing to comply with subpoena for Trump's tax returns. Trump is bending over backwards to not have his tax returns released. There are two potential reasons why that is. One of them is, He's just not worth nearly as much as he says he's worth, and he's embarrassed by that because his whole persona and mythology is built on this idea that he's like an uber-smart businessman. Um, so that's one reason why I would maybe want to hide them. The other reason is there actually is a whole bunch of bullshit in his tax returns and a whole bunch of activity that's questionable, to say the least. Um, I think we already kind of know what he's really worth, and it's not the billions and billions that he says he's worth. I think the low figure is like $100 million and the high figure is like $500 million or something like that. I'm going in the memory bank for that. Don't quote me on that. But it's roughly around there, okay? But that, I don't think that's really why he's hiding it. I think it is more because of there is shit that's in his tax returns that's like, whoa, where'd you get this from? And where'd you get that from? That's strange. What's going on here? And um, this is what I've been talking about for a long time, and you guys know. I think the real investigation into Trump is happening in the Southern District of New York. For the Mueller report and the Mueller uh, investigation, I was skeptical all along. I told you he's probably not going to get him on collusion. I was correct. He didn't get him on collusion. But I've also predicted repeatedly, I think Trump will be indicted when he's no longer president by the Southern District of New York. Now, why? What would they indict him on? Well, it could be any of a number of financial crimes. I think you can get them on a dozen financial crimes, including money laundering, including, um, you know, bank fraud, tax fraud. I'm sure there's just a lot of dirt there because let me tell you something. You don't 
get to be in um, in construction in New York in the 1980s and the 1990s and not have dirt on you. You absolutely have to have dirt on you. Now, whether that's dealing with the mafia, that's one potential thing. Another thing is, um, yes, money laundering is huge, and that's what this article is about. Now, they go on to say they do, you know, give a, a paragraph of caution where they say, hey, listen, just because things are flagged and it's suspicious doesn't mean that it is definitely this. It can be flagged for a number of reasons, and it's possible that they just cleared them, and they were like, okay, there's nothing here to see, so no reason to go further into it. But it does look like people at the top of the bank kind of said, well, no, we're going to cut this off, nip it in the bud, because we don't want it to go any further, because we know what's up, because he's had a relationship with this bank, and there could be questionable funding sources for Trump. And so I've told you guys all along that the whole Russia angle was bullshit, because it, it's proven in policy that Donald Trump is not doing the bidding of Vladimir Putin and the Russian government. In fact, he's doing the opposite of what Putin wants on like eight major issues, whether it be arming Ukrainian rebels or trying to get an oil deal with Russia axed and begging Germany to have an oil deal with us instead. The list goes on and on, you know, U.S. warships in the Black Sea. However, there is, you know, a very high likelihood that Donald Trump has done money laundering for various actors around the world, including Russian oligarchs. Now, again, I just want to be clear. That's so different from the argument of he's Putin's puppet. Because it, with the Putin's puppet argument, it would have to reflect in policy. He'd have to be doing the bidding of the Russian government. And he's simply not doing that. But for, being, for money laundering for Russian oligarchs, oh, that's perfectly possible. It's not likely. He probably has laundered money for Russian oligarchs. And to be clear, not just for Russian oligarchs, for corrupt business people all around the world. If he couldn't get traditional loans anymore, yeah, you can get go and raise money from people who got their money in very gross ways. So, th I mean, that's, that's a real scandal with Trump. I think he is a career criminal, and you are going to uncover a lot of stuff about him, which is why I think the Southern District of New York is going to nab his ass, and I do. I really do believe that. And this is like one of the stories that where I read where I was like, yep, here we go. See, this is the real stuff. There's a story about how his uh, Panama Hotel, they were allegedly laundering drug money through there. Totally possible, 100%. It's not likely. So here we go. These are real stories. And I think that, uh, you know, Steve Mnuchin bending over backwards, like, to not release those tax returns, and Trump continuously lying, oh, yeah, I'll release it when I'm done with my routine audit. What, has your audit been going on for fucking three years straight, dipshit? He's full of shit. He's trying to hide them, and he's trying to hide them because there is dirt in there. It's just the dirt is not the dirt that, you know, the media and Democrats went all in on, the dirt of, like, you're doing Putin's bidding. No. The dirt is he's a fucking two-bit con man and a career criminal, and he does have questionable funding sources through corruption and money laundering and a bunch of other things. So, but listen, I don't want to downplay that. That's not like, oh, it's just money laundering. No, it's like, that's fucking money laundering. That's huge. That's huge. And again, I think that's likely. So I think he might be indicted when he's no longer president because he can't indict a sitting president. Maybe. There's an open legal question, kind of. But at least as of right now, that's the rules we're abiding by. You can't indict a sitting president. But when he's no longer president, he could go down. And here's another story that's giving you a little hint as to like, something's going on here, dog. There's a reason they're bending over backwards to not release the tax returns. And there's a reason why 
the anti-money laundering people said, hmm, some suspicious activity in that account. And I think it is likely because there was some kind of money laundering. Call me crazy. So I have to admit to everybody, this is one of my favorite stories of the day. Everybody knows I love golf. It's a well-known fact if you've listened to this show for an extended period of time. I've brought it up, brought it up multiple times, whether it be on Kylan Corn or on this show. Probably more so on Kylan Corn. But um, I was howling reading this story the other day. So President Trump played golf with Rush Limbaugh recently. There was a picture that came out of it. It was hilarious. It was like, you know, you could hang that picture and frame it and just call it, like, entitlement or, or privilege. <laughs> like these pampered, old, fat, white dudes. I think Rush had a cigar or something in the picture. And uh, they had just played golf. And Trump's played golf a lot as president. And he used to go after Obama for that. Now he's president. He does the same thing. If not, plays more than Obama. Um, well... Donald Trump, according to his uh, handicap, so for those of you who don't know what that is, when you play golf, at the end of the day, you take your score and you put it into this uh, website, and the website is the Golf Handicap Index Network or something like that, and basically it tells you how you do in relation to the course. So if you're supposed to shoot 72 on the course, if that's what the course wants you to shoot, like, that's even par is 72. And let's say you shoot 75. That means you shot three over par. And so your handicap will roughly be the average over par that you shoot. So your handicap would be about a three. Now, there's other things that go into it, you know, like uh, the slope rating of the course. So some courses are way more difficult than other courses, and that will affect. So it's not exactly an average of how over par you are. But it's kind of close to that. Um, and Donald Trump's handicap is a 1.8. Okay, that would mean he's in like the top 1% of golfers. Maybe even top like 0.01%. To have a 1.8 handicap, you have to be fucking great. Like, great. And also, you have to play all the time because it's so easy to lose your feel in golf. And, like, you have to always be out there and playing and practicing to really have your handicap that low. I mean, you're talking about elite-level player. You're talking about the handicap is low enough where he could try to qualify for the U.S. Open if he wanted to. Like, play with all the pros type stuff. Well, that day when he played with Rush Limbaugh, apparently a score was posted. It was his first score that he posted in a while. He claims to have shot a... 68 on a par 72 course. And the course has a 75.3 rating and a 139 slope. Okay, the layman's explanation of that is it's not an easy course. It's a very difficult course. 68 is four under par. 
Let me put that in perspective for you. Jack Nicholas, who's just a little older than Donald Trump, and when you talk about best golfers in the world, it's either Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods. That's the whole conversation. That's it. It's Jack Nicholas, Tiger Woods, you're out. You can either go one, two for that, Jack number one, Tiger number two, or Tiger number one, Jack number two, or you tie it. They're both one. But Jack Nicholas is a little bit older than Trump, and Jack Nicholas's handicap today is about an eight which means today Jack Nicholas, one of the best golfers that ever lived, is worse than Trump, and Trump is almost the same age as him. That makes less than no sense. This course, in 2008, the LPGA held, held a, a tournament at the course. The LPGA is, of course, the PGA Tour for women, the ladies' PGA Tour. Um, Annika Sorenstam, who's the best female golfer that ever lived, at this course that Trump shot a, allegedly shot a 68 at, Annika Sorenstam went... 74-75, which is way worse than 68. The person who won the tournament is an 11-time LPGA champion. She, she went 69-75-71-70 to shoot three under par total. So in other words, Donald Trump played better there than the best female player in the world at the time. Tiger Woods just won the Masters about a month ago. Two of his rounds were 70. Now, granted, different courses, Augusta National versus this course, but Trump wants us to believe that he beat Tiger Woods two of the four days. He shot lower than Tiger shot. Come on, dog. Come on, man. Come on. Now, there is a slight asterisk at the end of the um, story here. <laughs> Again, I was laughing my ass off at this. The chances of him shooting this are it's literally zero. There's no way he, sh- he shot that. There's no way he shot that. No way. But the asterisk is there was just a hacking of his handicap thing. But the scores that the people put... It was like 100, 101, 105. So they went on the other end. They went on the high end like he's playing really bad. And the 68 was before the hacking. That's weird. But then the 68 was also taken down because the the USGA, the people who have the handicap system, they said, oh, yeah, his thing was hacked. But the hacking was the over 100 scores. But they also took down the 68. So it's actually, at this point, it's actually unclear if he put the 68 or if the 68 was like a prior hack before the thing that we know was a hack, which was the over 100 scores. But either way, I looked through his whole, um, his whole, uh, like all of his scores that were posted under the handicap system. And some of them I believe, some of them I just don't believe. So I'm going to actually show you that now. We have, um, let's go in order, the 68, which has since been taken down. Again, we don't know if he put that there or not. There's a chance that was part of a different hack. (laughs) But then before that, 96. Do I believe he shot 96? Yes, Donald Trump can shoot 96. That was in 2018. Uh, Then in 2016, so he doesn't post scores often, but in 2016 he allegedly shot 77. Do I believe that Donald Trump in 2016 shot 77? Answer, no. That is also way too low of a score. 
for him. Uh, in 2015, 85. I could see him shooting 85. Yeah, 85 is doable, I think, for him. But that's, like, where he maxes out at. I don't think he could shoot much better than 85. In 2015, 81, mm, stretching it. 86, yeah, again, I could kind of believe 86. 84 in 2014, yeah, it's close, it's close. 75 in 2014, no, I don't believe that at all. <laughs> Basically, any scores that are, like, in the 70s or 60s for Trump, comically wrong. And... Just so everybody knows, this isn't just me talking shit here. We've seen other uh, stories on this where I actually know somebody who, it's my friend's dad, who's a member at one of the courses that Trump is a member at. And he played golf with him back in the fucking 80s and 90s. And he has stories for days about Trump being the most obnoxious cheater you've ever seen in your life. And I'm not just talking like, you know, hey, you're out for a round with your buddies and you take a mulligan. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about it's not a competitive round. You're not playing a tournament, so you give yourself a lie in the rough or something. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is dude straight up will make an eight on the hole, and he'll be like, I got a five. I got a five. There was video. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I could find it. I only saw it once. It was on Twitter. But there was video of Donald Trump taking his cart and driving it onto the green. Literally, nobody in the history of golf has ever done that, because that is so insane. <laughs> like, you're not even supposed to drive or near the green, never mind on the green. That's insanity. And there's, again, he's notorious for this. He'll pick up 25-foot putts and say, uh, this is good. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? So, um... I don't know. You guys tell me. Do you think he posted the 68 after that day he played with Rush? It was like, yeah, I shot a 68. It was tremendous. Or do you think that that was part of the hack and it was a separate hack that came earlier? Because it was not posted at the same time. It was posted around the time that he played with Rush Limbaugh. So he may have actually posted that. But all I know is it is a fact. He's been a cheater for a long time on the golf course. And um, he's forever acted like he shoots really low. I was actually surprised to see his score or car, to see his uh his handicap card because some of the scores I actually believe like I I definitely believe 96. He could shoot 96. 85 I yeah, I could see that. But once you get low 80s, high 70s, 60s, no way. Not even close. And for percent of my audience that play golf, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This is honestly and the headline for the media article on this was super relatable because it was like he tell, this is like his most bold lie. If he actually posted that, that's his most bold lie as president, and that includes all the others. Like, he's told insane lies, but this is above and beyond, because anybody who knows golf even a little bit is going to go, no, you didn't shoot that. There's no way you shot that. It's not possible. So it's like, it's how unnecessary the lies are that I find hilarious. And even if you don't, even if you say, well, no, this one was part of the hack, there's video of him. Uh, I think he was he was on a show on the Golf Channel once, and he says to a caddy or something, like, I shot 72 today or something. And this is still when he was, like, 65 years old or thereabouts. You're not shooting fucking 72 at 60. You're just not. It's not even close. So it's the boldness 
and how brazen he is with these lies that I find hilarious and that have me rolling. But it also, on another level, it's kind of scary because if you're that full of shit on something like this, then it, there is no end to that. It's going to be full of shit across the board and in a legendary way where it is mind-boggling just how full of shit you are. Okay. All right, now let's go to the Fox Business Idiots. You guys will enjoy this one. So some Fox hosts uh, had a hilariously dumb conversation about wealth in America. This is pretty funny. Um, We do a lot of stories about millennials, the young people in this country. Charles Schwab did a survey. They asked people uh, all the way from young people up into the 70s how much money it takes to be considered wealthy. And according to millennials, they think, now everybody thinks, how much do you think? Well, according to millennials, the second one down there, $1.94 million to be wealthy. Charles? I thought that number was low. They didn't talk to my son. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, listen, I just think that it depends on how you live, where you live, and those kind of things. You could be wealthy with a million bucks if you live a certain lifestyle. You could be poor with a hundred million if you live a certain lifestyle. I think a more important statistic from that survey was, what do you think is the average net worth of American households? I mean, what do you think it would be? The average. What do you think is the average net worth? Uh, you don't know, obviously, I'll tell you. $692,000. That is the average. Ne- Come on. When you're a This reminds me of an old saying, there's lies, damned lies, and statistics. I forget who said it, but that's a well-known saying. And here's a, this is a perfect example of that. He's saying America is a wealthy country because he used the average net worth of people. A homeless guy in Jeff Bezos have an average net worth of about $60 billion. The homeless guy is worth zero. Jeff Bezos is worth about $120 billion. Their average net worth is $60 billion. That's how misleading using an average is in that circumstance. Okay, uh, you want to know what the median net worth is? Because median is just much better. It's such a better reflection of reality than average. Oh, please. That's so skewed to the top. That's so skewed in the upward direction by the mega wealthy. Duh. Um, the, the median net worth is $97,000. Now, remember, net worth is take all your debts and subtract them from everything that you have. So like, what's your car worth? What's your home worth? How much money do you have in the bank? How much do you have in investments? Yada, yada. And then take that number and subtract your debts from it. And that's your net worth. So the net worth 
median net worth in this country is $97,000. But I have an even better fact for you. And when I say better, I mean worse. <laughs> the median net worth for people under the age of 35, $11,000. So he's just completely misleading you with numbers. And um, I, I, how could I ignore the best part of this entire conversation? Charles Payne, this guy here. He was talking about wealth and what constitutes wealth, and um, he said, you can be wealthy with a million dollars. That's true, for sure. Uh, but you could be poor with $100 million. It just depends on your lifestyle. Pretty sure you can't be poor with $100 million anywhere at all. Like, at all, at all. Did you really just say that? <laughs> You can be poor with $100 million, depending on your lifestyle. No, you're not poor anywhere with $100 million at all. Anywhere at all. The fuck are you saying, dog? What are you saying? What are you saying? This is Fox News, man. This is Fox Business. Well, this one is actually is Fox News, not business. Um, that's, I mean, this is just hilariously stupid. They all go out there and just have verbal diarrhea about stuff and think they're making coherent points. You guys are embarrassingly stupid. It's a shame that Varney, with his British accent, it tricks people into thinking he might know what he's talking about, when really he's one of the most full of shit out of all of them. The final story is back to a televangelist, and it's Rick Wiles. You are about to be incredibly uncomfortable. All right, here we go. So televangelist Rick Wiles is somebody we cover from time to time. He is, like, uniquely out of his mind. It's kind of creepy. It's kind of scary when you see it. Somebody who's so massively, colossally disconnected from reality. Um, well, he spoke here about the new far-right abortion laws popping up all over the country in various uh, right-wing states. And he took this conversation in a bizarre and shocking direction. Israeli newspaper, Alabama's anti-abortion law, this is what Christian rule looks like in America. Yes, that's exactly what it looks like. We Christians are standing up and pushing out Zionism. That's what we're doing. Zionism brought the slaughter of 65 million babies to America, and we're going to end it. And we are going to impose Christian rule in this country. Why are you imposing Judaism on me? Because that's exactly what's been done in America since 1973 with Roe v. Wade. Judaism was imposed on me, imposed on my Christian nation. And we became a Jewish nation that kills babies. That's against my Christian beliefs. Judaism became the law of the land in America. That's precisely what the courts have ruled. They have based their rulings on, on the Zohar, on the Talmud, and now we have Zionistic Talmudic law ruling this country 
and resulting in the death of millions of babies. And this Cohen, we Christians are standing up and we're telling you we're done with Zionism. We're done with your values. We are going to impose Christian values in America again. Whether you like it or not, you represent less than 2% of the population of this country. How does 2% rule the rest of the nation? I know how. You control the banks. You control the technology. You control the media. You control the pews. And then you buy out the churches. Move that money around and those... Those crooked preachers take your money. That's exactly how you do it. What in the fuck? (laughs) Yo, he straight poured on the anti-Semitism there. I love how, compare this to what they claimed was anti-Semitic from Ilhan Omar. When Ilhan Omar, all she said was, um, it's all about the Benjamins, in regards to APAC, the right-wing Israeli lobby, buying politicians to do the bidding of Israel. She's 100% correct about that. Compare that to this guy. I, like, that was anti-Semitism that was out of the blue. It's, it's not even, like, pertinent to this issue in any way. He said, Zionism brought uh, abortion to this country. What? Roe versus Wade is Judaism. <laughs> what? Um, and then he said, we became a Jewish nation... It became the law of the land. The courts ruled it. Okay, I'm going to need a citation, dog. What are you saying? Where? Who? When? How? What's the name of the case? There is no case. What are you saying? There hasn't been a judge in, in U.S. history that has ever said, I hereby decree because of Judaism and because of the Jewish text that we are now implementing this as a new law or, or an interpretation of a law. Never happened ever. Ever. That's not a thing that exists. And then by the end, he just, you know, obviously he was damn near close to screaming uh, Heil Hitler by the end. He said, you're 2% of the population. He's talking about Jews. He says, you control the media, you control the banks, and you control the money. And you buy preachers. Like, the Jews have bought the preachers, presumably to be less fundamentalist compared to Rick Wiles interpretation of Christianity <laughs> the funny thing is this is like it's it's such obvious anti-semitism that it's baffling it's like you're arguing that Jews created abortion and they're like what <laughs> as if they're pulling the strings and by the way, if they did, um, cool. <laughs> like, that's not, I'm not outraged by that. I'm like, oh, that seems like rational policy to allow, you know, women to make their own decisions up to a certain line. And you could regulate it after a certain reasonable line. And we could debate where that line is. But to allow it, perfectly reasonable to allow it, it makes perfect sense. He strikes me as one of those guys who'll blame anything on the Jews. That's what, it stri- that's what it seems like, right? And then the Zionism brought abortion. What the fuck does Zionism have to do with abortion? And Roe versus Wade is Judaism. And we became a Jewish nation. It was, it was ruled by the courts. No, it wasn't, dog. You totally made it up. I don't, <laughs> it's left field. It's so left field that I was stunned by it. You control the media and the banks and the money. and He goes like this at one point. Uh-huh. 
Come on, Rick. But I called it. Did I not call it? We've covered one or two segments where Rick Wiles went after Ben Shapiro. And when I started watching the segments, at first I was like, oh, this is going to be fun. Like right on right violence here. And I'm curious who I'm going to side with. But then the more Rick Wiles kept talking, the more I was like cringing. Like, oh, he's doing that old school anti-Semitism. Like that's really, that's really his fundamental disagreement is that Ben Shapiro is more popular than him is number one. And number two is he's Jewish. He's Jewish. And he doesn't like Jews. Rick Wiles does not like Jews at all by any stretch of the imagination, and he's going to blame them for so many of the societal problems that he views as problems, stuff like abortion. I just can't get over I, I would be embarrassed. I'd be embarrassed to come out here and say things with, like, total confidence when it's just not true. But Rick Wiles does it, and it's, it's nothing to him. Water off a duck's ass. And the Jews, this nation is a Jewish nation. And it became law of the land because, the, because they control the courts. The fuck? Courts ruled that we implement Jewish law. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. He also said, this did not slip by me. Quote, We're, we are going to impose Christian rule. <laughs> so as he's arguing theocracy is bad because he thinks there's a Jewish theocracy in this country, he's like, but my theocracy is awesome. I love fundamentalist Christianity. It's wonderful and we should implement it. And yes, we're going to fight back. Ayatollah Wiles, that's what he wants to be. Supreme Leader Ayatollah, Ayatollah Rick Wiles. It does not have a ring at all, but it's definitely what he wants. All right, y'all. That'll do it, baby. I hope everybody enjoys the rest of your day. We have a random freak 83-degree day here in May in New York. It's supposed to be like 70, but it's 83. Anyway, love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'm out. Peace.